Welcome to the Moving Forward podcast. Today, I have Lacey Delane, who uh, has her own podcast called Rethinking Humanity. Uh, and I, I wanted to have her on to basically just, well, as you guys all know, I like to support other podcasters, especially in the Yangverse. Lacey, say hi. Tell us about yourself. Hi. Hi. Thank you, Rio, for having me. It's awesome to be here, and I appreciate um, what you're doing with your podcast and obviously helping and supporting other folks in the Yang gang and the Yang world. So rock on and thanks for having me. It's awesome to be here. Great. So for our listeners who may not have listened to your podcast yet, could you tell them a little bit about it? Sure. Um, I uh, started rethinking humanity in April of this year. Um, I had been thinking about doing a podcast uh, with my friend Sonia, who I do the podcast with, for some time, but I think the circumstances around uh, the pandemic really, uh, you know, really made it easy for me to step up and go, okay, you know, I'm going to do this. I have time and, you know, there's not a whole lot else going on. Uh, I also have some support from another Atlanta Yang Gang member who actually works in film and, you know, he just knows all the technology side. So he's like, listen, you got to do a podcast. I don't care what it's about. He's like, you could, you're just good at this. And he's like, I'll help you with the, um, you know, with the digital side. I'm like, okay, <laughs> that's, that sounds like a deal. So, um, so yeah, rethinking humanity is birthed out of, uh, just a love and a passion for the ideologies and the humanistic, uh, you know, the human centered, thought processes that encompass Eric Fromm's writings. Um, and I read him several years ago. And if it wasn't for that, I, I doubt I would have become as uh, involved in Yang's uh, campaign as I did. But the cool part about it, and I think the, the part that, I, that uh, Yang folks will enjoy is to see the parallels in what Fromm has written. And those are the things that we talk about on the podcast. Um, to see those parallels between what he wrote in the fifties, um, and, you know, Yang's platform and the, the values that Yang holds as a candidate, um, those two overlap in such an amazing way. And so I just, I'm very passionate about, um, shifting the way we think about ourselves and what we value as individuals and as a society. And, um, and that's, I feel like that's what the point of the podcast is, is just to kind of have an outlet to, to spread that message of like, Hey, guess what? We're not machines. You know, we're human beings. We need each other. We, we, um, you know, need to slow down a little bit. And there's a lot of reasons why. Um, and, and the, you know, a lot of the evidence I find in Fromm's writing um, but also in my daily life. And we, we do share, you know, about our daily life and our daily, you know, personal, sometimes our personal struggles. And, and I think that's an important element of a podcast too, because I think people want to know they're talking to, a, they're listening to a real person. Love it all. Um, so w I have to ask, what, what's that accent? Where are you from? <laughs> <laughs> I am from the South. Um, I grew up just west of Atlanta. I live in Atlanta, Georgia now, um, and I'm not a huge fan of my accent, but <laughs> it's part of life, I guess. I like it, and you don't you don't hear enough accents um, in podcasts. Everybody sounds the same, so it's always nice to have somebody that's different. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. By the way, I hear what you said about having time now uh, with the zombie apocalypse. We're all locked inside, um, yeah. so that's. Uh, might as well. At least you're using your time in a productive way. Right. Try to do that. And you have been doing more podcasting since this all started, I'm guessing, too. Uh, I, it's been kind of my, my schedule is, is all has always been a little odd. Um, it hasn't been as impacted by this as, as you would think. Um, but uh, I, I definitely can get why having everybody <laughs> kind of forcibly staying put would mm -hmm. seem like the perfect time to, to, to go about a podcast. Sure. Um, yeah. And, 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 uh, having help with digital is huge because yes. that is, that is, huge. it's a less glamorous, but really important part of podcasting. I'm really lucky that 
when Corey left, um, I got Jen Rizzino from Studio Stargazer stepped up to produce this for me. So I just have to be the talent. I don't. I just line up interviews and talk to people, and then he does all of the digital stuff, which is isn't it nice? Kind of awesome. Yeah. Oh my sure. gosh, that's the same thing as me. Victor said, "You just worry about content, and and don't worry about anything else." And I'm like. I can totally do that. <laughs> so thank you. Thank yeah, you. What a luxury. You're awesome. <laughs> yeah, you what a luxury. All yeah. right. So let's talk, yeah. let's talk about humanism and humanistic. And I, I yeah. guess like, like a good jumping off point for that would be why rethinking humanity. Uh, obviously that has to do with what you're talking about, shifting thought and the way we think about ourselves as humans. But can you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, sure. So uh, actually Sonia came up with the name, um, she and I met here in Atlanta at a philosophy meetup group through the meetup app, actually, a couple years ago. And she and I ended up, we just, we think similarly when it comes to these things. And so we would always have these conversations and I'm just like, these are just so good. We really could probably just do a podcast. And of course, we end up doing that. She came up with the name Rethinking Humanity. I think it's perfect. Um from the marketing perspective, it's perfect because it ties in with Yang Gang, uh, you know, the association with the word humanity, obviously. And it, it, it really is a good definition for the podcast. Like what I am saying and what she is saying, what we're saying is like, hey, we need to rethink the way that we're thinking about our own humanity and what and defining humanity and what it is and what it means. Yeah, well, obviously, the overlap with Yang there is pretty clear. Um, I definitely love his um, framing of his economic policies as human capitalism. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a great way of sidestepping yeah. the what I would like to think is an outdated debate between capitalism and communism, but it it's creeping back. Um, and so I, I think Yang brought a lot of uh, fresh air into that conversation. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And I, I, I agree that the socialism capitalism is, you know, outdated and it's a nice way to try to polarize people. Honestly, like our, our economy is not a hundred percent anything anyway. So the mixture is already there. And I think, um, you know, you could argue that we, we need a little bit more of a mixture and basic income could be a way to do that. But, but I love, it's just so brilliant what basic income is because it's, it's really not socialistic. It's actually, it promotes the, you know, uh, it promotes the economy. It promotes capitalism too. So it's, it's amazing, uh, how those two are like both at the same time and in some ways. Yeah. Um, you, you may or may not know that's actually how this podcast got started. Corey, uh, was the one who had, um, podcasting experience and I was, just uh, academic uh, nonprofit running kind of guy who had no interest in doing anything like this, frankly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but he saw me, uh, I wrote an essay called uh, The Conservative Case for a Universal Basic Income. Mm-hmm. And he had me on his progressive morning show like over a year ago. Uh, yeah. And we just hit it off. And he was like, oh, my God, I never thought that I would get along with a conservative so much. And and I was like, no kidding, brother. I never thought I'd get along with a progressive so much. What the hell's going on? So yeah. I decided to start a podcast and just uh, shoot the shit together, mostly talking about Yang, but eventually all kinds of other things. Yeah, um, that's, yeah. that's awesome. Totally. So talk, tell, tell me about philosophy. That's cool. I studied philosophy in college also. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm a huge fan of philosophy um, and just intelligent conversation. That's kind of my deal. And I I would say that rethinking humanity certainly is a philosophy podcast because it's really thinking about, you know, how, what our values are and how we orient ourselves. And so, um, freaking love philosophy, dude. So you've studied it in college. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, uh, I, I, I was in um, college for 10 years, believe it or not. I studied a little bit of everything, um, uh-huh. basically liberal arts, uh, so philosophy and, and, and all the arts. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite philosopher? Uh, I Boy, that's a tricky one. I guess probably Daniel Dennett. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I uh, um, as you're saying this, I'm thinking like, gosh, I need to go back and listen to like I, I need to catch up and listen to all of your podcasts because I'd love to do that. Maybe I could come on and talk philosophy with you sometime on your show. Um, I love what you said about intelligent conversation. Um, uh-huh. Can you elaborate on that a little more? Because I, I feel like that's <laughs> definitely something that is lacking. And with especially with having a, an anti-intellectual person on TV every day pretending to speak for the country, it's it's, yeah. it's, it's refreshing to hear. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, I think when if I was going to define intellectual or intelligent conversation, I would say it's the discussion of ideas instead of like gossip or things or, you know, shopping or I don't know, things that are just kind of trivial in some ways, you know. So uh, sharing ideas, um, thinking deeper about things, um, that would probably be the my best definition for it. And I just have found that when I talk to people who are willing to go there with me, I just feel so much more alive and so much happier. And it's just a groove that I like fit in, in a, in a strong way. And so there's just a different kind of a life that you get. It's very life-giving. It's a different kind of life that you get from having those types of, of conversations. And to be honest, I find it difficult uh, for, I find it difficult if the, if someone isn't able to do that, I have a really hard time spending extended amounts of time with them, especially if I'm like dating someone, <laughs> they need to be able to do that or it's not going to work. Yeah, that's funny. I, I Part of the reason I, I did this podcast in the end is because my wife was saying, Rio, you really need an outlet to talk about politics. You're not bringing it to the dinner table every day. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Actually, yeah. my uh, my mom has a, a – she, there's this popular saying that my mom used to say a lot when I was a kid, which is great minds discuss ideas, average minds discuss events, small minds discuss people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I should keep yeah. that in mind next time. I'm tempted to waste an hour talking about how annoying Donald Trump is. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we could all totally do that, couldn't we? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to. I know you uh, asked me this early on, and I didn't answer. You asked me to tell everybody a little bit about myself, and I didn't do that. So let me go back and fix that to give people Please. context. I think that might be good. Um, so I am originally from uh, Georgia. Grew up in the suburbs of Georgia, or suburbs of Atlanta, um, and. Uh, lived abroad uh, for a year and have done some other things, but been mostly in, in the Atlanta area most of my life. Um, but I got, uh, super involved with, um, the Yang gang last February after hearing Andrew on, um, the Joe Rogan podcast and ended up starting really like, uh, gr- starting and growing the Atlanta Yang gang, we did like 45 events here in the Atlanta area um, just to get the word out about Andrew. And it was a lot of fun. We did one. I'm also a soccer fan and player. And uh, we did one event where we went to the Atlanta United game and <laughs> gave away free beer to people when they Googled Andrew Yang on their phone. So uh, so that was a lot <laughs> of fun. That. Yeah, people were like, really? You're going to pour me a free beer just if I Google? I'm like, yes, please, yes, I will give you a beer if you just Google him. And then they're like, okay, thanks. And then I just said, Uh, hey. Look at you bribing people for votes. (laughs) I didn't bribe anybody for a vote. I bribed them for doing some damn research. (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, anyway, it was fun. And people uh, really responded well to it, but. Uh, in October is when I went on, actually went on staff, uh, as advanced team lead and, uh, travel with the campaign support team, helping planning and executing events where Andrew was speaking. So it was a very, I was a whirlwind. It was an amazing experience. Um, it was all encompassing for sure. I mean, I really basically walked away from a, an established life here in Atlanta to do it. Um, but it was a hundred percent worth it. And, um, I'm so thankful that I had the opportunity to do it. 
Yeah, well, tell me about it. That's great. And thank you, by the way, for doing that. Um, from those of us who are grateful for the fact that the Yang campaign was a thing. I think, mm. uh, you know, just the way that he changed the conversation and broadened people's understanding of policy options and political philosophy is is an enormous accomplishment. And um, I'm excited about him speaking at the Democratic Convention, actually. It'll be interesting to see what yes. he says. Yes, uh, thank you. I do agree with you that He's kind of like one of those once in a lifetime candidates and people willing to to put himself in a position where he's running for a for office and being involved in politics. You know, uh, it's so refreshing to to find someone like him uh, in that space. So I knew after I read his book, I was like, yeah, this is the guy and I am willing to do whatever needs to happen um, in order to help make this happen. And, uh, and here we are, he's going to speak at the, uh, at the convention, which is awesome and well-deserved for sure. 100%. Yeah. Last I heard he was even scheduled to be the very last person to speak before Joe Biden. That's kind of amazing. Yeah. Isn't it? I think that's awesome. Do you know if he, how much time he's going to speak? Um, it sounds like not a terribly long time, but originally he wasn't invited and then he was invited and now he's speaking right before Biden. So I wouldn't be surprised if they extend his, his, his time a bit. I mean, let's be honest, <laughs> most of the, most people aren't going to speak for very long because there's a lot of people to get through. <laughs> true, true. And, you know, I think one thing that I noticed about Yang, I don't know if you noticed this, but he was very, very good. And this is the skill, seriously, a real skill. He was very good at speaking for get, getting out the words that he needed to say in a short period of time or in the allotted period of time. It's not always easy to do. And I think that's part of why you see politicians just go on and on and on. And they're like, you know, in the debates, there was only a certain amount of time that they had really to respond and they would just blow through it, you know? Um, and he was really, really good at, at respecting those boundaries. Uh, I agree. Um, he definitely has a talent for economy of language, which um, social scientists tell us is actually a sign of high intelligence. Yes. I, I mean, I, I remember having a conversation with him about that. I'm like, you are really good at that. And I was like, that right there is a skill. And I mean, we, we obviously all know he's brilliant, but I don't know that we all know myself included, how brilliant. <laughs> well, what a, what a contrast uh, with uh, with the current occupant of the White House, right, who just bloviates endlessly and says lots of things that have no meaning whatsoever. I think the hardest thing for me with him is that if you listen to him talk, like how the percentage of what he says that is a fact is probably like 10 at the most. Because, you know, he'll be like, I just had a meeting. It was a great meeting. We had a fabulous time. And I talked to so-and-so and he was, he's an awesome person or he's great. And I'm just like, I don't give a shit about what your opinion is of the guy or the meeting. Tell me what you talked about. Oh yeah. No, <laughs> then he goes into it and people are saying everybody was amazed. Everybody I spoke to said it was the best meeting. <laughs> right. I'm like, what, what are you talking about? Can you tell me what the meeting was about. <laughs> right. Can you imagine uh, President Andrew Yang? I mean, because he just drops like 10 data points in a single sentence sometimes. Mm-hmm. Oh, how refreshing. How freaking refreshing and would it be? And actually true as opposed to just pulled out of his ass lies. Right, right. And trying to cover up whatever it needs to cover up. I mean, look, as nerdy as the whole PowerPoint thing is, uh, at the State of the Union, that is so exactly what we need because we there's so much free passes that people get because they they're hiding the data basically. You know, people are just getting away with a bunch of shit because <laughs> they don't tell the data. You know what I mean? It's like it's sad. Yeah, yeah. I I was definitely impressed with um, Yang's uh, debating skills. Yes. Yes. And I mean, you know, I don't know. When did you start? When did you find out about him? Oh, really early on. I actually listened to his interview with Sam Harris. That was like a year or two before um, the primary even started. 
<laughs> and I remember the first time I, I heard that interview, I thought, okay, all right, dude, you're running for president, whatever, you know, like I, I, I you know, you're really interesting. You're an impressive right. businessman. I, I love your policy proposal, but I didn't believe that he was actually a real presidential candidate until the primary came around and and then he went on Joe Rogan which I guess Harris also hooked him up with that interview and and Rogan was interviewing him, oh you're a you're a you're you're in the democratic primary and that's when I realized like oh my gosh that guy from you know a year and a half ago he really wow. is running for president who would have thought <laughs> i'd almost forgotten wow. about it wow amazing you knew very early on that's crazy i saw him in november on uh the young turks that's how i found out about him and i was like hmm basic income that's cool and i followed him on twitter but i was very much about bernie at that point and so once i heard his ideas in full i was like oh shit this guy he knows way more <laughs> you know like he's way better but the reason i asked was because um you know i know that that is a skill actually that he developed on the trail and I didn't know if you saw the first debate. I'm obviously, I'm guessing that you did. And what you thought yeah, about yeah, I did. that. Because a lot of people thought it was a humongous disaster. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a way, it kind of was. Um, I mean, he didn't get to speak <laughs> enough. Uh, he... He, yeah. He's a little too humble to be a politician in some ways. Um, and, and, and over time, I think I've noticed that he's realized that, you know, nice guys finish last. <laughs> Unfortunately. Well, it's a sad, probably true. Uh, but but I think he is an example that, you know, there is hope that nice guys don't have to finish last, you know. And I think one of the things he did really well on the trail was build very good, positive interactions with the other candidates and the other people on the trail because he values human beings. You know, he really is genuinely the guy that you see, you know, on on TV or whatever you're listening to on the podcast, that's, that's really who he is. And I can say that just from having worked with him and spent time with him. Um, but I will say this about, you know, looking back, I can see how his skills in debate absolutely uh, increased and got much better over time. And wow, did he kill it in Detroit? And, you know, he just did so much better, but the first debate, I know a lot of people were like, oh my gosh, that was so bad. But man, I, I, I'll have to tell you that I was going, nah, I mean, yeah, he didn't get to talk that much and that's disappointing. And he didn't interrupt or whatever. But in my head, I was like, you know what? Yeah, but people are going to notice. Like, this is the guy who is, when he speaks, he speaks substance. He's, you know... Uh, there he's not being an ass and interrupting other people he's not you know throwing mud at anyone and people really did notice that and it did resonate with people and so my whole stance on that whole thing was like look guys like I get it that was disappointing we were really excited that he made the debate but he's gonna make other ones and it's not like he put his foot in his mouth or said anything that was horrible you know what I mean like he 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 could have done better with some of the questions for sure. But what do you expect from somebody who's never been on a effing any kind of political, you know, real political debate stage? I know he was he did like debate stuff in college or high school or whatever, but you know what I mean? Like that's just a huge deal to go be on a presidential debate stage. Of course it's going to take a minute to get your, you know, bearings about you and figure out what you're doing and how to do it. It's just like the first time you go play soccer or ride a bike or whatever, you're not going to do it perfect the first time. And so honestly, on the contrary, I think he did like pretty damn good for the first time, you know, considering all that, even though it wasn't, you know, as good as we would have wanted it to be, he still did pretty good for the first time ever on the freaking debate stage. Oh, absolutely. Um, he might've naively thought that the presidential debates would follow anything like decorum or fairness. Um, <laughs> I, I think the people who are moderating those could learn something from the people who moderate high school debates, frankly. Oh yeah, exactly. I was, I was disappointed in, you know, a couple of the debates and I was at a couple of the debates, um, in person, which was a crazy and awesome experience. Um, but yeah, there were, I think it was ABC 
that I was, yeah, it was ABC that I was disappointed in the most to about how they brought structure to the debate and kind of like held the boundaries. And we have that many candidates. You really need to be able to do that if it's going to be fair. And if you don't want it to be like, you know, gossip and throwing crap at each other the whole time. Um, so, yeah, there were definitely outlets that did it better than than others. Oh, for yeah, sure. no, for, for darn sure. That's true. I, I, I think mm-hmm. MSNBC was the worst, to be honest. I, I was very disappointed. I think Fox News would have done a better job than MSNBC, to be completely frank. Uh-huh. I mean, they, they actually treated Yang relatively respectfully by comparison and um yes yeah one of the one of the the challenges that yang faced is that his ideas are a little heterodox in the democratic party they don't really fit in to the republican party either um because they're just a little bit too generous um for the republican ethos um but the problem with the the democratic ethos is that um they really believe in this social liberal concept of compromising with socialism and Mm -hmm. that's how you get the means tested welfare system that traps people in welfare um that punishes them for getting a job by taking away their benefits etc 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 it's coming from that that mentality um of trying to level out income so that low income people have more high income people have less whereas yang is is not coming from a a zero sum way of thinking about it, but a post-scarcity way of thinking about it. And that that post-scarcity way of thinking about it is more compatible with the capitalist mindset. It's just that, um, mm-hmm. as I said, in the Republican Party, it's capitalism plus heartlessness. Uh, Yang is capitalism with heart. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, too, that um, I think that one of the things that makes Yang so great in his thought process is that it is all about the non-scarcity, the abundance mindset. And I think that's something that if we, if we could get a hold of on a national level, we could really see some positive changes uh, in our society, um, in the way we live. I know that, you know, it seems that Yang is one of the type of leaders. He is a leader who can do that, who can, He's very good at rallying people around a set of ideas, as we all can see very clearly. And I think if that's something that he, you know, uh, has the opportunity to to present to more people, to model to more people, um, to inspire in other people as he does that, I think we could see a lot of like brightening of the eyes and hope political hope again, um, and just like open-mindedness to new ways of doing things, new ways of thinking, because that, you know, and this ties back to the podcast, Rethinking Humanity as well. That's really what we need. I mean, these ideas he has, uh, Yang has in his book about incentivizing things and digital social currency and those types of things. Those types of things are what are going to take us through this next change, this third, fourth industrial revolution that we're going through and into the next era with happiness and with peace and with, you know, instead of all the negative that really, you know, we're capable of having. Um, as we go through this huge transition that, you know, the pandemic is only accelerating at this point. Yeah, we're really getting to the heart of my own interest there, because where I'm coming from is I, I really am focused on trying to preserve the fruits of classic liberalism, the ideas of democracy and the rule of law and the Constitution and you know, protections for minority rights against majoritarian rule, decentralization, and all the brilliant things that made our modern democracies possible, our liberal democracies possible. And it's really frustrating to me to see them both under attack um, by the alt-right, um, which has kind of a, a fascist slash theocratic monarchist <laughs> trend, and um, mm-hmm. a far left which is uh, equally illiberal um, in its rejection of its total rejection of capitalism. And in many cases, explicit rejection, even of the democratic process with this 
the sense that, you know, regular people don't know what's good for them. They just need, you know, a, a authoritarian to solve their problems for them and then and then they'll they'll be happier. Um, so it, it's really, in my opinion, I'd, I'd like to know what you think about this. I think what happened is that the as the part as the both parties moved right after the fall of the Soviet Union, there wasn't really a pallet um, for um, left wing economics in the first world. So both parties were moving right and elites started to work together to distract regular people because they didn't believe that you know regular people are going to want to take us down that road. We don't want to give mm-hmm. we don't want to we don't want to be Nazi Germany, we don't want to be Stalinist Russia, we don't want to be North Korea, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so we need to distract them with these wedge issues and so forth. Um, and for a while that worked and liberalism was able to um, maintain its uh, power over both parties, which is, I think is a good thing. But the problem was um, eventually regular people realized that their needs weren't being met by a competitive, purely meritocratic system. And mm-hmm. rather than figuring out a way to thread the needle between the good things about liberal values and the, necess- the necessity to make regular people feel like it, the system was working for them, we just doubled down on on, on dividing people. Um, and, and, mm-hmm. and so what Yang is trying to do, it seems to me, is he's trying to say, look, we don't we don't have to be we don't have to relitigate the the fights of uh, the 20th century that happened during the industrial um, revolution, right? We went through a big economic shift. People were scared, um, and and some really dark things happened. Some countries went toward fascism. Some countries went toward communism. And in both cases, it was a disaster. But it was somewhat understandable in the sense that regular people felt like something needed to be done, something radical needed to be done. Yang saying we don't have to repeat the mistakes of the past. We can preserve liberalism by upgrading it to human capitalism. We can meet the needs of regular people while preserving our individual liberties as uh, you know citizens of, of sovereign, liberal, democratic republic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, he talks about that too in his book about how capitalism has changed. If you look throughout the course of history, capitalism uh, has changed and the values of it have changed. And, you know, in some ways, you know, and some of those changes have been loosened. The, and we see that where we are now, loosening the value of humans, obviously, in the process. And that wasn't the case earlier on. And so his argument, and and I agree with this 100%, is like the easiest thing for us to do is shift our values a little bit within the same model. And, you know, Eric Fromm, who um, is the writer that we're kind of going through his stuff on uh, Rethinking Humanity, his, his viewpoint is more of like we have to do socialism. And I did think that for a, for a while after reading his books, I was like, maybe he's right. Like, maybe that's the thing that we need to do. And when I heard Yang, I was like, oh, my God, he's saying all the same things. But his solution is so much better. Like, it's, you know, realistically moving to socialism. Number one, it's not happening. It's not. But number two, trying to do that, it's such a massive change. It, it just isn't it doesn't make sense. It's just not. Again, it's not uh, practical. But then if you look at the way that Yang is presenting the solution to that, you know, the problem of humanity getting lost in capitalism. Now, that's something that we can all unite around, right? And we don't have to divide each other around. One, it's also one of the things that I loved about him the most was that he was a uniter. It's very clear in his language, the way he speaks, you know, he didn't use cliche phrases from one side or the other. And, you know, I love that. And as much as he was honest about Donald Trump, it was not about like bashing Donald Trump. There's plenty of that going on. We don't need any more, you know, like that's fine. We get it. He's an idiot. Let's move on. Right. So, um, yeah, I just I I think the unifying is absolutely right. And I do agree with you that it's a distraction. Um, and, you know, it's a it's an effective one. Unfortunately, it's 
been a strategy that that has been used to, you know, distract people and let those who are in power kind of, I guess, continue to do whatever it is that they're doing and getting away with or whatever. So um, that is huge. And, you know, this goes to philosophy a little bit, Rio. I wonder what you think about this. But I've even thought like that sports <laughs> are, a, are a distraction. You know, I think about the way that how much I feel like today we really could have more as, as individuals in the society, we could really have a lot more say in what's going on. And so I think about really like who, who really does have a say in what's going on. And it's much easier for them to keep the power that they have if we're not thinking about all the things that need to be different and need to be changed. And so then I think about how, you know, how buried we get in our jobs in this country and we just work, 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 right? And then work-life balance is not a thing. It's rarely a thing, right? And then I think about, okay, what do we do when we're not working? We're watching TV, which has got a bunch of ads, you know, brainwashing us, kind of whatever, or we're watching sports. I mean, many people do not want to talk about politics because it's just too exhausting, you know, (laughs) in their downtime. So I don't know. To me, it's just very, very interesting um, to think about kind of how do we spend our time? uh, You know, what are we doing with our time? And then why? Why are we spending our time that way? And mental health is also a part of, um, you know, a part of that as well. And why we're spending our time in certain ways, something we touch on on the podcast as well. And so it plays a role in all this. And I think that is the very, very interesting part about what Frome talks about because he was a psychoanalyst. So he, he worked with individual patients, but then you know, he also would step back and take a look at society as a whole and wrote about society as a whole um, from a mental health, emotional health perspective as well. And of course, that all plays a role in capitalism, all goes hand in hand with that. I mean, the way you live your life on a day-to-day basis absolutely affects your your mental health. Yeah, um, I, I I hear what you're saying there. I, I agree with you. Um, I I worry a little bit though, and and sometimes I think maybe Yang doesn't do enough to de-radicalize um, his own supporters because I, I do worry a bit about the fact that you know uh, polls are showing that a majority of Yang gang are not going to vote for. Joe Biden, which isn't even true about, you know, Bernie Sanders supporters, something like 80, 90 percent of Bernie Sanders supporters will be voting for him. Um, So I feel like Yang succeeded at reaching a lot of people who felt disenchanted with the political process. But he has so far failed to redirect all that cynicism and apathy and angst into a healthier, mm-hmm. more productive direction. So I, I, I worry, I worry yeah. that like that cynicism and apathy becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Because if by definition you think every politician is bad, then what's the point in even trying to participate in the process, yeah, right? I think it's really important to make a distinction between good politicians and bad politicians. And so that narrative mm-hmm. of, you know, our problems are the fault of every single person in Congress, vote them all out is destructive. And, and, and it really is a self-fulfilling prophecy because what, what that will lead to then is it will lead to Uh more corruption, not less because politicians will start to just take, take it for granted and they'll start to be as cynical as the voters. No, that's so true actually. And I'm glad you said that because it's easy in the battles that we win or lose to, to become frustrated and then it's easy to just go to that conclusion of like, Oh, everything's, you know, it's all bad. Everyone's bad politicians and there's no saving the system. So I love that point, And I agree with you a hundred percent. I think going back to your point about gang, like being able to rally folks to support Biden, mm-hmm. you know what I think? I think everybody got super spoiled with him. Like they love him and his ideas are amazing, obviously. And Joe Biden is like, (laughs) 
I'm voting for Joe Biden, okay? But his <laughs> ideas are not anywhere near. Like, I get it. I get it. I mean, he's not nearly as exciting as Andrew Yang. So I get it. And I hope that with time, these some of these folks who are saying, I'm not going to vote for Joe Biden, will understand the risk of having uh, Donald Trump in for four more years um, and, and you know, change their minds. But I think it's pretty, I, I can imagine that that would be pretty natural for people who are like, how can we vote for anybody else? This guy's the most amazing thing ever. Yeah, he is. But guess what? He's not the nominee. So suck it up. Keep it moving. Vote for the Democrat, please, so we can have a, a different reality come this time, you know, next year. That does actually seem to be the way that Americans think. Um, when it when it comes time to decide whether or not to reelect an incumbent, um, most Americans seem pretty reasonable. They seem to basically just kind of take the temperature of uh, the country and say, hey, do I like the path we're on right now? And if the answer is no, then vote out the person who's responsible for that path. Not that he's singularly responsible, of course. But, you know, the, when yeah. you're talking about division, I mean, I, I, and this is part of what I think Yang means when he talks about how, how Trump is a symptom of the disease, right? But really what he is, is Trump is the apotheosis of division, right? He is, he is the, that is where that strategy was ultimately going to take us. Yes, 100%. And that's another way that Yang is the opposite of Donald Trump. Yang is the uniter and Trump is a divider. And that doesn't mean, you know, I, I don't know. I think the thing we need the most right now is to unite. And the pandemic just made that even more uh, dire, that need to unite. I mean, we're just so divided. So divided. I'd love to know if there's a time in history where we were this divided. Well, I mean, the Civil War, I think that that's about where you'd have to go. Um, yeah. Mm. And you you would also have to go, to go to the Great Depression to find a time in history where our economy was in more dire straits. I mean, people like to point at the stock market, but that is not the only indicator, as Yang talks about brilliantly, of, mm -hmm. of the state of the economy. Um, you know, GDP dropped 30%, which has never happened since the Great Depression. I mean, that's nuts. That's absolutely bonkers. And of course, it's partially artificial because of the pandemic. But, you know, that's part of being the leader of a country is stepping up when scary things happen. And Trump responded to it by dividing us further when he could have used this as an opportunity to unite us. I mean, whatever you think about George W. Bush, when we were attacked on 9-11, he united us. He didn't he didn't use that opportunity to start, you know, he didn't start saying, oh, these these this thing happened with these planes because the elites did this and that and also the Democrats and blah, 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 blah. Right. He didn't start telling Americans to fight with one another over it because what a ridiculous thing to do. Yep. Yep. It's very, very true. And I think we we would have been a lot more successful getting through this pandemic with that type of leadership, because I think people are going back to the mental health, um, the underlying anxiety and depression that people are feeling right now on a higher level than typically they would, because we just, nobody really freaking knows, like, do you wear a mask? Do you not wear? I mean, obviously I know you wear a mask, but I'm just <laughs> saying, you see what I'm saying? Like people are confused and there's no clear direction. I think Andrew Cuomo did a great job um, in New York being very clear and uh, being very transparent about what he was doing, what they were trying to do. Um, I'm not saying he's perfect and nobody is, but I, I definitely like looked upon his leadership um, with jealousy, uh, <laughs> going, man, we, can we please have this at the federal level? And I think we would have been able to kind of like come together like human beings naturally do in a crisis instead of being further divided through it. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I, I'm a firm believer in states' rights and decentralized power. And this is actually a perfect example of why that's important, because if Trump was all powerful like he wants to be, our reaction to this pandemic would have been even worse than it was. Fortunately, states that had 
reasonable leaders were able to step up and 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 do things when the federal government was refusing to do anything about it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was thinking about when I was, you know, that misinformation issue that you brought up, and I read a story that I was just really sad to me, and it was about uh, a, a a guy in his late twenties who went to a, a coronavirus party because he believed Trump's lie at the time, which was, you know, of course he changes his story every day, but at the time his story was that this was a hoax. This was a democratic hoax. And yes, I remember right. That. Right. And, and it's just like getting the flu or the cold. It's no big deal. If you're healthy, you're going to be fine. And so this young right. man believed what the president of the United States told him, which you could hardly blame him for the president's supposed to be a smart person. Right. And he went to a coronavirus party and he died. He, he died wow. in the hospital. And, 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 and while he was in the ICU, he even said, you know, I think I made a mistake. I thought that this wasn't real. And it turns out I was wrong. I mean, that's just so heartbreaking. That, that death was entirely avoidable. How old was he this was guy? in his like mid to late twenties. He was like 27. something. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And it's that's not, it's so not sad. as common as old people dying. But if you get coronavirus and you're young, the odds of you dying of coronavirus are still significantly higher than you, the odds of you dying of the regular flu, <laughs> you know? But but this guy didn't know that because his president lied to him. And it's just awful. Right. And for no reason and- other than political gain. It's just, that's all he cares about is what makes him look good. He couldn't give a fuck about America. No, no, it's true. It's about him. And I will say this about the coronavirus. I think... One thing that has not been reported as much as we could could be helpful for people is the morbidity rate. And what that is, is how this virus affects you over the long term. And I've heard some really scary stories about uh, young people who are fit and healthy and work out on the regular and that this and that having trouble with major extreme fatigue um, not being able to return to activities as normal, um, you know, at least in the first couple of months, um, after having it. Um, and then also there's a, there are young people who have had coronavirus who are having strokes and, um, actually know someone who had a stroke, um, and she's in recovery at this point, um, still trying to get like full, her right side of her body was, paralyzed, not even 30 years old, very fit, healthy. Um, We do not have evidence that she had coronavirus, but she was exposed to it because she was working in the healthcare field for the first part of this year. So it's, I'm telling you, there's so much more to this than we all know. (laughs) And it's, it's, uh, it's more than just the flu. 100%. 100%. Yeah, I was just talking to my wife about that the other day and um she she had been reading about people who they who we know did have coronavirus but who had very mild symptoms and easily quickly recovered, right? And then 3 months right. later suddenly they have major organ failure. Wow. Young people and including young yeah. people, right? And so, you know, we don't know what the long-term damage done by this it's possible that it could do all kinds of damage to your body that is just going to haunt you for the rest of your life. So, yeah, you know, as a 36-year-old guy, I do not want to get this disease. I don't want my 35-year-old wife to get this disease. Nobody wants this disease. It is not something to mess around with. Not at all. I certainly don't wish it on on anybody. Um, I wanted to talk about what you said about you know, Yang being a uniter. <laughs> Let's take this to a little bit more of a positive place for a second. Um, yeah. But, you know, I agree. And, and part of being a uniter is um, being humble when you lose and bringing people together behind the winner. <laughs> right. Which is which is what Yang did when he endorsed Joe Biden. Um, and I think I'm actually been really impressed at how Biden um, has proven to be more of a uniter than I would have thought as part of part of the way he was able to persuade a lot of the other moderates in the field to drop out um, when it looked like it was going to be a race to the finish between Biden and Sanders. Biden persuaded, uh, you know, people like Pete Buttigieg um, to drop out and endorse him. And it turns out the way he did that was by reaching out to them and saying, look, you know, we need to coalesce behind somebody 
I'm going to take, you know, this policy or that policy from your platform. And he started taking good ideas from every other candidate, including Yang. Uh, he has Yang's democracy dollars on there. And now his VP pick. Um, yeah, yeah. Isn't that amazing? That alone is enough reason to vote for Joe Biden. Imagine what democracy dollars would do. Come on, man. Say it again. You're right about that. And um, and then, of course, his VP pick, VP pick um, Kamala Harris, whatever you think about her, she's one of the uh, co-sponsors of the bill in the Senate that's trying to get everybody a $2,000 temporary UBI during the pandemic. So clearly she right. is already half, she's got her, she's halfway, you know, in the door of the UBI church there. Right. Right. I- agreed. And I think that is the beautiful part of that pick is that look, look where she is right now, at least where she has been in her head with basic income. She's on board at this point. That's great. Yeah, totally. So I'd like to hear you elaborate a little bit more about Eric Frome and what you see as like the overlap between him and Yang, because something you said really stood out to me. You said that you thought that he was making lots of really compelling points from um, and and that, oh, maybe we do need to do socialism to address these issues. And then you recognize Yang was talking about many of the same problems, but in offering an even better solution. And that to me is um, a perfect example of what this podcast tries to embody, which is how healthy it can be to just be an open minded person who. You know, like listening to somebody or reading someone's book doesn't mean you have to agree with everything that they say. Right. And I mean, right. It sounds obvious, but you'd be surprised how many people don't realize that. (laughs) Um, Or and also equally importantly, you can you can disagree with aspects of what they're saying, such as the socialism is the solution and still recognize that there are other things that are valuable that you agree with um, that someone like like from said. So uh, I I just feel like that's a, a perfect example of uh, the benefits of, of healthy discourse. Yeah, for sure. I think we need more of it. And, and I, in fact, it's something that Frome talks about in the book, the book that we are reading of his, he has several um, that he wrote in the seventies. This one is called to have or to be. And um, he talks about there being two main modes of existence that we orient ourselves from. Um or that we can orient ourselves from. And he talks about how capitalism and the way that capitalism has been run for the last, uh, let's call it a hundred years, has made us not even aware that we could orient ourselves from the being mode of existence. And so he talks about how the having mode of existence um, is our primary orientation in towards life. And what that means is, is that we are uh, motivated by owning things, by property, by competition, um, by having, basically. And so we perceive things um, as something to acquire. We perceive ourselves as things instead of as humans. Um, We market ourselves as things instead of, you know, relating to each other as human beings. And what he's saying is we will be a lot healthier if we can learn to orient ourselves from the being mode of existence. Uh, and this I'll tie back to your, what you're saying about conversation and being able to disagree um, as well. But the being mode of existence is, you know, you're instead of worrying about what you have, it's more about focusing on an experience um, being present in the moment Um you know, uh, relating to each other as human beings. Um, and, you know, really like it's, it's kind of the opposite of what drives the root of capitalism when it's uncontrollable, which is greed and selfishness. It's the opposite. It's, you know, open-mindedness. It's, uh, selflessness is probably not the best word, but, you know, sharing solidarity, that type of thing. Um, instead. And we've gotten so far away from that with the current model of capitalism um, that there doesn't seem to be to be room for that. There doesn't seem to be room for even like really learning to love another person because that he argues is a skill and you don't develop a skill by investing zero time in it. And 
that's about how much time we invest in learning how to really communicate effectively, how to love our partner, how to love our friends, how to, you know, really be healthy individuals inside of relationship. And one of the ways that we see that is in going back to your earlier point, um, the way that we interact with each other in conversation when we disagree. You know, he says, if you're in the having mode of existence, you're not trying to listen to what the other person is saying. You're just trying to prove your point. You just want to say what you're going to say and you approach the conversation with no expectation of, you know, changing your own mind, but every expectation of trying to change the other person's. But, but the competition is, is like, can I just say everything that I want to say? And in a being mode, you're in, you're in a conversation and you're listening and you're open and you're really willing to know, I may not agree with everything this person is saying, but I can learn from them. I can take something from them and I can just be present in the moment instead of trying to like prove that I'm just this awesome, amazing person because blah, 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 you know, fill in the blanks. We're just human beings. We all are. We put our pants on one leg at a time, each each and every one of us. So like that kind of thing is just, it's a jockeying that's unnecessary that our current, uh, you know, format of capitalism creates. Yeah. I mean, going back to the Greeks, like uh, an argument didn't actually have the same competitive um, framing that it does today. Um, and learning about um, learning about the perspective of the other person and incorporating it into your own worldview was actually more important than, you know, quote, winning. Um, we, we could learn something from going back to that. But yeah, I mean, I, I like to talk about it as like competitive discourse versus consensus discourse. And that's something that mm-hmm. this podcast tries to focus on is whenever we get tempted to go into the competitive mindset where it's all just about trying to undermine your opponent in order to make their worldview in order to discredit their worldview it's better instead to start with wait a second what do we have in common and then try to build consensus from that it doesn't mean you have to agree about everything but if you can find Mm -hmm. something you have in common you can start to build on that yep absolutely so I, i i liked what you were saying because um i i actually completely agree with your take um there i think i think that from um you know as a capitalist myself i think that uh from diagnosed a lot of a lot of problems um with the some people's approach to capitalism and the way way i think about it is that capitalism is a tool and like a lot of tools you can kind of make of it what you want right you know some people choose to prioritize a kind of uh materialistic um lifestyle, right? But then there are other people, and this is increasingly common with younger generations today, who say, you know what, I'm going to live in a smaller house. um, And, um, and then I'm going to use that extra money so that I can travel the world, right? Or I'm going to take a job that pays less money, but it gives me more flexibility, and I find it more fulfilling. You know, all of those options are available to us, even in our imperfect system that we have right now. And so, in a way, it's it's a it starts with uh, you know being the change we want to see in the world. It sounds trite, but it's totally true. Yeah, I, I agree with you to an extent. There is an extent to which you can do that, but the quality of life in this country, because of the cost of living, you you end up losing a lot in quality of life. So it's a it's not impossible, but it's a big big challenge to be able to do something like that, especially if you have a family. So um, I agree, but I think we could we could create some we could create a, a, a climate where that was a lot easier to be done. Um, so, Lacey, I know you have to get somewhere, but uh, I'm going to give you the final word. Uh, so maybe just uh, tell our listeners where they can find your podcast and um, and, and learn more about Eric Frome. <laughs> Yeah, sure. Well, first, Rio, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Like this is talk about intelligent conversation. This is where we're at. That's great. Um, Yeah, you guys can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, um, Pocket Casts, also Anchor, pretty much most of the uh, 
podcast platforms have us. It's Rethinking Humanity. We're also on YouTube, and the handle on Twitter is at Rethinking Humanity, and Rethinking has no vowels. So that's how you can find me, and I'm also at Lacey Delane on Twitter. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Lacey. We have a thing we say at the end of every podcast here. We say, moving forward is our gumbo. Thank you very much for listening to the Moving Forward podcast. Together, through these conversations, we are all working to ensure that the Humanity First movement keeps moving forward. If you haven't yet, please visit our website at movingforwardpod.com, where you can support our Patreon. We will use those funds to advertise, to grow our audience so more people hear these important conversations. Thank you very much.